I thought your mama was going to be all right. <laughs> be happy. I know I could have done better. But you, you got to decide. You want to be somebody or not. I've been doing real good. I just had a down month. I got an interview tomorrow, Mom. Otherwise, I... Oh, you know me. I always land on my feet. That is the trailer for Hillbilly Elegy, a Ron Howard film that came out in 2020. Unfortunately, a lot of the movie theaters were closed, and a lot of people couldn't get the opportunity to see it in a movie theater, but uh, it was available on Netflix, and I got an opportunity to watch it. Uh, Amy Adams plays Bev, and Mamaw's being played by Glenn Close. And uh, just, I, I gotta say, the makeup and some of the performances were just fantastic in the movie. Whether people thought of the movie and, and the message behind it and everything, it's, it's certainly an uncomfortable movie, but not everything in life is supposed to give you comfort. And that's the film adaptation of the 2016 best-selling book, called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And J.D. Vance has, uh, grew up in Middletown, Ohio, chronicled his youth and dealing with his mother who had addictions and being raised by his uh, grandmother. And uh, going from small town living in southwestern Ohio to ends up being a Marine, going to uh, Yale Law School, he ends up becoming a venture capitalist and is uh, has good dealings and good partnership with Peter Thiel, and then now he's running for Senate in Ohio. And uh, he's my guest here on the Check Your Brain podcast with me, Tony Mazur. I appreciate you folks listening and subscribing to this. And uh, if you want more uh, interviews like this, go check out my Patreon, where uh, I also rant and rave and talk about other things, sports, politics, anything. That's patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. You get to hear me rant and rave for five bucks a month. You get about 20 podcasts a week. So I hope you can check that out. Otherwise, you get the free versions, which come out weekly on Wednesdays, which is this one with J.D. Vance, uh, where we talk about him running for governor. We talk about the shift in his political beliefs, which wasn't much of a shift. It was just kind of attaching a political party to it. And talk about how the mainstream media, uh, corporate press, and the coastal elites, how they went from... J.D. in 2016 is our guide to understanding the Trump voter and the Trump base to, and now he's a grifter, he's this and that, and that he really kind of fell out of favor. It was a strange heel turn that was happening uh, in the press and by the uh, elites and the coasts and everything. And so J.D. has since returned to Cincinnati, he's returned home, and uh, we talk a little bit about small town life and the learning to code and what to do with these small towns and not just Ohio, but in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Indiana, that just have fallen into disarray and the drug use and the jobs, uh, you know, drug use is up and the jobs are down. And so we talk about that a lot in this interview, but it was a really cool opportunity to talk to the guy behind Hillbilly Elegy. He lived it. He considered himself the hillbilly from... <laughs> from Appalachia, and now he's made good. So I got a chance to talk to him uh, as he was just kicking off his Senate campaign in the state of Ohio. So without further ado, and I appreciate you folks listening to this, here is my interview, my conversation with J.D. Vance. I think what we need in Washington is people who understand how the elites plunder this country and then blame us for it in the process. 
We need people in Washington, D.C. who knows how the system works, who knows how to reform that system, and who can make this country better. And that's why I'm running to be your next U.S. Senator for the state of Ohio. I have the honor and pleasure to talk to somebody who I've uh, really admired, especially in the last five years, because uh, I think, like a lot of us, we didn't know who he was a couple of years ago. And then all of a sudden, his book and his story just really caught the cap and captivated people and really caught the attention of just when I say the rest of the country, I say that in a loving term because I feel like being in Ohio, the, the, I'm in the rest of the country. I'm in flyover country. And that book was Hillbilly Elegy and uh, came out in 2016. And as soon as it was released, it basically was uh, there was a bidding war for people who wanted to be a, a part of it and put something together and put a movie out there. And the movie was released in 2020. So in the last few years, uh, J.D. Vance has been out and about and doing a lot of uh, press and been on all the TV shows and radio and everything and podcasts. And now he's parlayed that from being a Marine, Yale Law, a venture capitalist, to now running for Senate in the state of Ohio and running and gunning for uh, Rob Portman's seat as he is leaving. And I have the pleasure of uh, having J.D. Vance here on the program today. J.D., thanks so much for doing this. And, uh, I, you know, this is, uh, this is really cool for somebody that uh, grew up in such a small town. I think a lot of people know your story, and we'll get into a little bit more of that. But just going from small-town kid to running for senator of Ohio, that's got to be exciting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And what you know, what an amazing place we live in where, where stories like mine happen. And I, I definitely you – know, we did our kickoff event in Middletown, Ohio, which is where I grew up a, a couple weeks ago. And we had about 500 people there. And you know, a lot of those people, I was looking in the crowd as I was speaking and seeing faces from my childhood that I didn't even know were, were going to be there, but they were. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a really a cool experience to go out there and be able to talk about the things that I care about, uh, but obviously have the support of, of my hometown and the people who, who live there. Uh, just an amazing honor. It's something about Middletown that is very familiar, and so I, I'm broadcasting out of Akron right now. And Akron is a very similar – a lot of you, – you start noticing a trend in a lot of these towns, especially in Ohio, but also throughout the Rust Belt of the – uh, this town used to be great decades ago. What happened to it? And then you say, well, it was the jobs and the uh, the economy and then the drugs and everything. So a, a town like Middletown is very much like a lot of our towns that we have in Northeast Ohio, such as, you know, just outside the Youngstown area and, and places that have been bit by the steel mills leaving and the, uh, the, car, the car and auto plants leaving and everything. I always look to, when, when I'm watching Hillbilly Elegy, when I watch the movie, and you see kind of... A, a town that used to, you know, used to be something like Middletown that fell on hard times. I look at it from my perspective up in Northeast Ohio, a town like Lorraine. And uh, sure. Lorraine's a town that had steel mills, gone. Had the, the auto plants, gone. What's left there? And really, there's not, it, it's sad to say there really is not a lot of hope. And, you know, it, it, with you running for senator, what is it that you feel that you are able to inject that kind of hope into towns like Middletown, into Lorraine, into Steubenville or Barberton or a lot of these other places that I guess a lot of people kind of just forgotten about? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. And I, you know, I was in Lorraine for the first time a few months ago, actually. And it's funny, I was I was with a friend and we were driving around and I thought to myself, you know, this town just reminds me a lot of Middletown. 
because you've got you know these these old beautiful houses. You've got you know clearly some factories that used to be in operation that that aren't in operation anymore. So it, it just you know the landscape reminded me a lot of Middletown. It's funny you brought up Lorraine, just given how similar it is to my own hometown. And you know I I mean I unfortunately think that the the decline in a lot of our our small medium sized cities, even our big cities, has has been a choice that we've made. I think that a lot of us have have, have basically uh, a lot of our leaders, I should say, have made the trade that we're going to have less manufacturing, less of an industrial base, less of our own country making things, and more of a dependence on countries overseas making our stuff for us. Now, what we were supposed to get in that trade is that we were supposed to get a lot of cheaper stuff, right? We were, we were going to let China, China make everything, uh, but they were going to send it to us much cheaper than we could because the people that were making it in China were going to make a lot less money. Well, I, I think if you run that experiment over again in Lorraine or Middletown or a lot of other places and said, well, you know, we're going to get a lot of cheap stuff at Walmart, but a lot of our people are going to lose thousands, hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of jobs across the country. Would we run that experiment in the same way? And I think I think the answer, at least for me, is no. Because, you know, a job, as, as we've all learned in the last 30 years, uh, if we didn't know it before, it's not just a wage, right? That's the most important part. you got to be able to feed your family, put clothes on the back and all that stuff. Yeah, but a job is also something that, that brings people community and brings people purpose. It gives people to wake up in the morning. It gives people a sense of pride in what they're doing. And I think what we lost in this country was those good jobs that gave people a sense of pride. It gave them a good wage, yes, but it also gave them a sense of place in their community. And, and it, when that goes away, when you lose those good employment prospects, then I think a lot of problems start to set in. So, you know, my, my life and certainly in Middletown, you've seen, you know, the opioid epidemic. That's something people talk a lot about. But, you know, it's it's just been harder for normal people to get by. It's harder to pay, pay for the basic necessities. It's harder uh, for families to sort of stay stable and comfortable. You get more divorce. You get more childhood trauma. You get more abuse and more neglect. And obviously some people are able to persevere and, and achieve and have a good life despite a lot of those things. But when you when you make a decision that you're going to have a lot of community decline, uh, you can't just look at the people who are doing really well and say, see, it's still possible. You've also got to look at the people who aren't doing well and say, what can we do to make it easier for those folks to live a good life? How do we make it easier for everybody, not just to select few to have a good life in these communities? Yeah, and those small towns, and as you have the actual experience, a true rags to riches story, that what happens to these small towns? Now, I'm personally, because I want to talk about your shift in politics over the uh, last few years, because I'm a. I'm somebody that it's almost like I, I, I'm a chameleon in some ways, and some days I consider myself more libertarian. Other days it's like more paleo-conservative type of uh, just based on, I don't know, like I, you know, it really kind of does change by the day in a lot of ways. And when you start to look at some of these towns, and uh, I, I've heard this over time, and what you heard from a lot of the journalists, you know, the, the vices and the voxes that came out and were talking about learning to code. And that when you would hear the, the coal mine would shut down in West Virginia or the steel mill in Pennsylvania or the auto plant in Michigan that they would shut down, the journalists that were out there just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, maybe if they learned to code, they probably would keep a job and ho-hum. 
And it just yeah. it really bothered me when I heard that because they're they're coastal, in my opinion, coastal elitists. A lot of them, uh, you know, had that opportunity to have backing to live in New York City or live in D.C. or live in San Francisco, where mommy and daddy paid the rent for them. And they looked upon Middle Middletown, Ohio, and they looked upon Akron, Ohio, kind of just as nothing more than flyover country. And you say, well, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you just get a job? Why can't you just learn to code? Why don't you just move to San Francisco like I did? And it's yep. as somebody who did leave that and go to Yale and then come back and, and now living in Ohio again, what's it like to look at that from that different perspective and talking to people who have been on the coast that just have no idea what it's like to grow up in this part of, uh, of the country? bothering when people said, well, why don't, why don't they just move? And I think to myself, well, you know, it's really the choice that we want to give every kid in this country that the only way they can have a chance at a better life is to basically you know, do what I did, which is leave leave your home, leave the people who made you who you are, so you can go and work in a big city. And what I found, you know, of course, when I when I got to the big city, I talk a little bit about this in the book, but have, have learned, you know, even since then, is that no matter how good of a life you can build for yourself there, no matter how lucky you get, no matter how good your job is, if your home is where your family is and that family is in Ohio or anywhere else, you know, you're never going to really feel comfortable in those new places. You're always going to want to get back. And, you know, my wife made the decision to move back to Ohio. She was about seven months pregnant with our first baby. He's now, you know, he's now a little over four years old uh, when we decided to move back. So we wanted my kids to grow up around the same people, the same community that I grew up around. That's, you know, that's, that's why we moved back to Ohio. But I think a lot of people assume that that folks have no attachment or no real sense of belonging in these places. So, you know, they say, well, just get a U-Haul, right? Move your whole life to San Francisco, learn to code, get a job in the computer industry and everything will work out fine. You know, even for folks that want to do that. And there are people, you know, who grew up in Ohio who just have no desire to stay in Ohio, no desire to move back home. I, I get that. I get that they're out there. They should, of course, have that choice. But even even if you assume that a lot of people are going to want to leave their homes, it's not so easy to do that when the jobs that are out there require a whole different set of skills, maybe, than what you're being taught in your schools or your universities. And more importantly, people ignore how expensive these places are to live in. I mean, a a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco costs around four thousand dollars a month. You can't live on that on a normal middle class job. And so the expectation that everybody can just sort of pick up and move to these more expensive places. Yeah, the jobs might be there, but the jobs very often don't pay enough for middle class people for them to be able to actually afford to live in those cities. And so you've got, you know, in San Francisco, and New York City, you've got these terrible conditions where people, you know, they work in a decent middle class job where, you know, maybe they make an amount of money that, that it would be OK in Cincinnati or it'd be OK in Akron. But they are living in a one bedroom apartment with seven or eight other people because they can't afford to live there. That like that's not a good life either. So I think on both sides of this, the elites get it wrong. They get it wrong, not recognizing that these cities are too expensive, even for the people who want to live in them. And more importantly, we can't just tell every kid in this country that the only way they can achieve their dreams, the only way they can live a good life is to go move to some faraway place where their homes and their families don't even exist. That That's not a good way to live a life. That's not a good set of opportunities to actually offer to people. You know, we talk about the coastal elites, especially when you saw in the 2016 election that 
you kind of notice that the people in, in the Beltway and the people in New York were living in that bubble where they don't really, their version of leaving town in New York is going to Long Island, basically, and going to the Hamptons. That's leaving town. And then they would come back to right. living in Brooklyn and everything. And the, so you were, we were talking about bubbles, but then there's also kind of that small town bubble that some places get burst. Now, I look at it as somebody that I do see that where, yeah, it's the same people that, uh, you know, the, the, the prom queen and the foot, quarterback of the football team ended up getting married and everything. And, you know, you do see a lot of that kind of bubbles. And is that a bad thing? I mean, to be in that kind of insular bubble, especially if you live in a town like Ohio where, yeah, we do have some big cities. We also have a lot of small areas. As you know, as we're talking, uh, on, as you're on the phone right now, you're going from a place where it's the capital of Ohio all the way up into, to my county of Summit County. But there's a lot of not much in between. And people kind of forget that there are people that are living in those places, too. They're not just when you're when you're in your first class seat on Delta and you look outside and it's just green and yellow squares on the ground. No, people live there. But there's also people in there that live in that bubble. How do you, in a way, escape uh, a bubble, whether you're living on the coast or living in the middle of the country? Yeah, you know, I, I think people have got to try to understand that we share a very big country and and even just within Ohio, we share a very big state uh, with people who come from all walks of life. And it's always good to try to understand where other people are coming from. That's true if you grow up in Middletown or that's true if you grow up in New York City. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, most of the people that I talk to in some of our small towns, uh, they're, they're not nearly as condescending about the, the people who live in New York City as the New York City inhabitants are about the people who live in Middletown. And that's, of course, not to say that every person in New York City is condescending. That's not true. But I, but I think that a lot of people who live in our small towns, you know, they, they want to be left alone. They want good opportunities. They don't necessarily assume the worst about other folks. But if they do, of course, I think that's the wrong assumption to make. And, you know, even even in, you know, I, I, we live in Cincinnati now. I'm driving through Columbus right now, actually, uh, on, on the way, like you said, to Summit County. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the people who live in uh, Columbus, Ohio, are not, you know, rich, really well-educated liberals, which is what I think a lot of a lot of people might assume that they are. You know, there, there are a lot of good middle-class people who live in Columbus who are just, you know, actually share a lot in common with some of our small-town people. And I think it's important to remember that there are commonalities, even though people come from different walks of life, that we do share some real, some real commonalities. And I think from that, we should take a sense of pride and community and a sense of belonging. Um, and and I, I do worry, honestly, that whether it's the media or the leaders of popular culture, they try to drive this massive wedge between the people who live in our cities and the people who live in our small towns. And, and in my experience, you know, yeah, there are, but there's also a lot in common too. I, I am noticing this uh, in the last year with the pandemic that the people who normally would go to a San Francisco or go to New York for vacation are finding places in North Carolina, going to Lake Norman, uh, going to Gatlinburg, mm -hmm. and they're they're really appreciating the small town life because it's not just a simpler life. That's I think that was the misconception where towns like Middletown would be. Oh, that's just it. They're simpletons living a simple life. It's like no, there's. There, there's complications, as you mentioned in the book in Hillbilly Elegy, that, yeah, every town has, you know, has good things, has bad things. And it just is a different, whether it's a macro or micro scale, uh, scale there. Um, but it's kind of one of those cases of this that life, I think people are 
I, I could be wrong, but my theory is that more people are looking in terms of, you know, I don't need the big city right now. And that's the one thing in Ohio is that we look and we have a lot of nature. I was talking to um, uh, recently uh, uh, about a book on looking at what Ohio is kind of like that crossroads of America where you do have the the colleges. You have OU, you have Ohio State, that your alma mater, and Cincinnati, and the, the bigger schools. But then you also have the smaller colleges. But then also you have farmland. And also you you mm-hmm. have the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So you really have, you have a lakefront. You have several rivers, including the Ohio River, the second biggest in America. Ohio really is one of those states that kind of has a little bit of everything. Yeah, no, it really does. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite things about the state. It's just, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful state. Uh, you know, the, the one thing we don't have is deserts, which I don't like deserts anyway. So that's good. I actually like places where people are meant to live. Uh, I joke with my wife who grew up in San Diego. Um, you know, the difference between Ohio and San Diego is people are actually meant to live here. We don't have to pump in our water from somebody else. We actually get it from the sky, like a normal, like a normal place. <laughs> and she, you know, she, she always, she always takes some, some offense at that. Uh, but, but, but that's absolutely right. That, that I, I think Ohio does have a lot to offer, uh, you know, Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Akron, they're, they're great cities with a lot of the, the benefits and the amenities that cities have, but they're also, you know, even Columbus, I think is small enough that if you really want to get involved and, and make a, a, you know, make an impact on the community, you can. And then, you know, like you said, you've got a lot of these small and medium sized cities, uh, where people assume the worst about them very often. But, but if you actually go there, they're good people. Uh, the quality of life is very good. It's, it's affordable to live there. You know, you can send your kids to a school where you actually know the people who are teaching them and, and they're part of your community. And that, that was always what I loved the most about living in Middletown is I didn't feel like I just lived in a place with these other random people. I felt like they were part of my, my team, my community. Like I saw, you know, we saw our teachers at the grocery store and we saw them volunteering at the local fairs and we saw them marching in the parades and just – you know, you felt like you actually shared a place with people. And I, and I do think that's one of the, the real benefits that our smaller towns provide is, is that sense of community. I wanted to ask you about your shift in your political beliefs. Now, I don't know if there was a massive shift. I think for a lot of people, they saw you go from you know, 2016 to having uh, tweets uh, against Donald Trump and then eventually supporting him a few years later and then running as a Republican in Ohio by 2021. And I, the way I saw it, I didn't see that it was a drastic, dramatic shift in your political beliefs. It was more so just almost like, in a way, I needed to. I need to be a member of a party, but ideologically, you really haven't hadn't changed too much. Talk about your I, I, the shift in politics and how the media kind of took a heel turn from you being the darling of the Rust Belt in Middle America to. Uh, and I just saw something uh, on in the Atlantic that just accused you of just being a a grifter, and they were saying it was a moral collapse of JD Vance. Talk about how that whole shift from your own personal uh, politics to how the perception of J.D. Vance has changed. Yeah, you know, I, I've been openly supportive of, of Donald Trump for the last several years, and I find it interesting that, you know, people sort of, you know, they, they bring up what I, I said in 2016, and I was critical of him, uh, and they and they compare it to what I said a few years ago or last week, and they say, well, you know, you clearly changed your mind. It's like, yeah, I, I have changed my mind. In fact, it's I think that's what thinking people do when they see new information come to light is they change their mind. 
I mean, I've always been a conservative and I've always been a Republican. And I think that, frankly, the reason that a lot of the, you know, the mainstream press is attacking me is because they see me as honestly calling out a lot of their problems and they see me as, as a real threat to them. Because, uh, you know, I, I think most of the people who live in this country are good people. But I, I do think the leadership of our country has become incredibly corrupt and incredibly divorced from, you know, what most normal average Americans actually care about and want in a community. And so I'm not afraid to call that out. I'm not afraid to criticize it. I, I was not, you know, an especially political person, um, at least outwardly, you know, five, six years ago. I answered some questions and had some tweets, but it wasn't like I was really involved in politics. And I've become more involved in politics over the last few years just because I think it's it's clear how important it is. You can't not care about politics if you actually care about the direction of the country. And so I've tried to get more and more involved over the last few years. I think a lot of people don't like it, and that's fine. They can criticize me. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But I, I the, the fact that they're criticizing me, I take is a bit of a bad honor, because if I wasn't doing the right thing, because I wasn't actually making them feel a little bit afraid, then I don't think they'd take any time out of their day to, to call me all the terrible things that are calling me. Yeah, with a couple of exceptions in Ohio, from the you know, bigger city mayors to Sherrod Brown and Tim Ryan, Ohio is not just red, it's going crimson. And it's one of those things where I look at it from my family as a blue-collar family growing up. My grandparents were Democrats, but they were the blue-collar Democrats, the lunch pail, you know, th these are for the working class, the yep. union Democrats. And over time, they started going, wait a second, it was probably, I would say, probably during the Nixon years and then eventually into um, into uh, Jimmy Carter, and then with the Reaganomics and everything that came out of the 80s, that you saw a lot of those Democrats shifted to being Republicans. And it wasn't so much that they left the Democrat Party. They felt that the Democrat Party left them. And I, I, I in my opinion, I kind of see that shift going on now, where somebody like yourself, who, again, not an overly political person. I'm somebody, I do stand-up comedy and uh, in working in radio, and I see a lot of people who are not normally political people say, I can't, I can't handle this woke movement that's going on. Uh, I, I can't keep up with the genders and the pronouns that are happening right now. Like, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what, what's going on. And if I say the wrong thing, I'm afraid I'm getting canceled or fired from my job or something. Some kind of mob is coming after me. So that's why a lot of people started looking at whether it was Donald Trump or what Ron DeSantis and uh, the governor of Florida is going through right now, where you're looking at more of that, I guess, a right wing pop populism, too. And the the days of the uh, Mike DeWine types of conservatives are starting to slowly go away, and people are kind of gravitating towards that more. So that's where that politics, and that's where it's you're kind of inserting yourself in there as being some. And you and I are roughly around the same age, uh, a couple of years apart. As you know, this is the new generation, and unfortunately, it seems that the new generation of the Democrats are going way off the reservation with the woke stuff. What is the future of the Republicans? I mean, it really has taken a big, drastic turn in the last couple of decades, and especially in the last half decade. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a very important question. I've, and I've always you know, thought of myself as more of a right-wing populist than, you know, a, uh, you know, a, 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 a traditional left-right guy. I've always sort of thought of myself as a guy, you know, I care about traditional American values, but I also care about whether working people can have a good life. And I've heard people call that right-wing populism. I don't, I don't shy away from that label. I mean, to, to me, the basic thing that Republicans should stand for is simple. We want good people who work hard and play by the rules to have a good life in their own country. 
Uh, and that, that, that's, that's the simple thing that we want. Now that, that assumes a lot and there's a lot of detail to be worked out within that, but you know what, why do we care about the immigration issue? Because we don't want our cities to become, you know, higher crime places. We don't want to import a large number of desperate people when we're struggling so much to take care of our own. Uh, why, why do we want to stop invading every country in the Middle East? Because we don't want to waste our most precious resource, which is our young people, going and, and fighting a bunch of dumb wars with countries that are never going to like us and never going to really change. You know, why do we care about trade? Because we want the good manufacturing jobs to exist in our own communities right here in Ohio. We don't want to force everybody to go and learn to code and work at Google. We want them to be able to, be able to have a good life in Akron or Middletown or Cincinnati if that's what they want. Uh, why don't we push back against the woke craziness in our schools, the critical race theory? Because we don't want our children to learn that they come from a terrible place, and we don't want them to be taught that they're evil and racist because they're white. Uh, all of these things, I think, go back to this simple principle that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to have a good life in this country that all of us call home. And that's really what it's about to me. And if that's right-wing populism, I'm fine to assume that label. You go back uh, back to March of 2020. I want to get your thoughts on, how, on the response to the pandemic and the lockdowns, because in, in Ohio, in early to mid-March is when Mike DeWine, the governor, kind of he was the guy that was out ahead of it and said, well, I'm putting politics aside and putting partisanship aside. I don't care, Republican, Democrat. We need to get out in front of this virus. We don't know much about it. So I'm shutting down the schools. I'm shutting down the bars and restaurants and essentially the gyms and the hair salons shut down everything for the for about two or three months, eventually slowly reopened things with capacity, but then required masking. And uh, but a lot of the big cities, their public school systems kept the students out the entire year and there was a lot of truancy and there was a lot of problems and we started seeing and now and now here we are in 2021 in the summertime we're hearing about suicides we're hearing about drug overdoses and this isn't just the big cities it's the small towns as well and you're hearing it throughout ohio to the point where there are some stats that are saying that the deaths of despair by children from 18 and under are outweighing the deaths of covid from around that time too so i wanted to get your thoughts on the lockdowns and how the response to the COVID stuff that has happened, whether it was in Ohio or across America. Yeah. You know, look, look, I, I think obviously I look at a guy like Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis did a good job. Um, and I, and I wish that we had followed his lead a lot of ways. Of course, you know, Ron DeSantis also very early implemented a lockdown to try to prevent the hospitals from being overwhelmed. But after a few weeks when it was clear, the hospitals weren't getting overwhelmed. And you got to open things back up and you got to let people start to get back to their normal life. Protect the vulnerable, protect the elderly, make sure that the hospitals stay at, you know, under capacity. But let children see the faces of other children. Let small businesses begin to operate again. Let people live something like a normal life uh, so that they don't get miserable, they don't get depressed, and they don't start killing themselves, which is unfortunately what it looks like we're seeing all across our country. I think we made two big mistakes in response to COVID. I, I think the first is that we, we let the fear overwhelm all of our other thinking. And, and that, that was a big problem because, look, you want to tell me I got to wear a mask to go into a grocery store April of last year? Like, look, I, I don't care one way or the other, fine. I'll, I'll put the mask on. But you want to tell me that a two-year-old has to wear a mask for the next three years of their life? They're not allowed to see the faces of other children? That is crazy child abuse to me, and I'm not going to stand for it. And I, and I think that we, we, we would too easily let ourselves go from, well, okay, this is a reasonable 
if maybe a little stupid thing that we're going to do just to make other people feel better, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it'll help things, maybe it'll help slow the spread, whatever, to all of a sudden we're going to implement long-term restrictions that are making the lives of our kids miserable. Like, come on, this, this, you just got to be more reasonable about this stuff. And then the other thing, the other big mistake that we made, I think is we failed to actually chart out an exit strategy. Like it's one thing to say, you're going to shut everything down for two weeks to slow the spread, make sure the hospitals get overwhelmed. Like, what's the goal here? What's the end result? What is the thing that we're all shooting for? You can't just tell people you've got to stay in your homes indefinitely. You can't let your kids see other children indefinitely. You've eventually got to tell people, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And when that is over, we're going to go back to some semblance of normal. And what, what really annoys me about this whole thing is – Americans, Ohioans, all across the board tried to do the right thing, right? Some of the restrictions just read about, had conversations about it, but we all tried to do the right thing. We all tried to be respectful. We all tried to ensure that the elderly were protected. We all, I think all of us, whether we wanted to or not, actually made our lives a little bit more difficult because we were trying to do the right thing in, in light of this pandemic. And what happened? led by Fauci, but of course it was others too. They turned this into a long-term power grab. I think they took Americans' compassion and effort to do the right thing, and they turned it against us. And that's what really annoys me about all this. They, they, they took something really good about this country, and they turned it into a weakness. I know I only have a couple more minutes with you. Uh, I know you got to get going here, but uh, I was talking about COVID and the lockdowns because people went to those deaths of despair and resorted to heroin and fentanyl. And uh, I, the stat that came out last week that said 93,000 people were uh, died of overdose in 2020, and they said upwards of two-thirds to almost three-quarters were uh, fentanyl-related, and the rest were heroin, cocaine, and everything. Um, as somebody who has personal experience with uh, uh, dealing with family members with addiction and especially with heroin, uh, if you were to become senator, how are you able to better handle the opioid ep epidemic that we have in Ohio? And, uh, you know, is, do you have I'm not saying you have a magic eight ball right now or a crystal ball, but what is it that we can do better that's kind of try to stave this off? You know, there are two big things. First is you've got to try to get people into treatment whenever they're able and willing to enter treatment. You know, my mom has been clean and sober for six years, and that's just an incredible blessing. But it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't had you know, good, good options when she finally got to the point where she was ready to get clean again. So we've got to make sure that people have that helping hand when they're ready to reach out and try to get themselves better. That's important. But the most important thing is that we have to lower the supply of drugs that are in our communities. I mean, everyone that I've talked to, I think every statistic tells you that if you've got a, a lot of heroin and a lot of fentanyl in your streets, people are going to die. It's just that simple. And we've got so much fentanyl on our streets right now for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest is because we've got a ton of it coming through our southern border. Now, I, I care a lot about the immigration issue for a lot of reasons, but this is maybe number one is – Compared to this time last year, we've got four times as much fentanyl coming into our communities across the southern border. Again, that's in one year, four times as much fentanyl. That stuff is poison. It's going to come into our cities. It's going to come into our small towns. It's going to kill our kids. It's going to kill our adults. There's just no way to get a handle on this terrible problem unless you stop the amount of poison that's coming into our communities. And you can't do that 
unless you control the southern border better. For people who want more information on uh, J.D. Vance, everything, uh, is there a website to go to, and uh, how can they donate? How can they be a part of it uh, for your uh, for running for uh, Senate here? Yeah, we'd love to have everybody's help. It's jdvance.com. Again, jdvance.com. Uh, pretty easy website. You can go there. You can sign up for our volunteer email list. You can donate on the website. You know, we need all the volunteers and all the donors that we can. It's expensive to run for this thing, but it's also a big state. And uh, I love that, but it also means you need a lot of volunteers to get the word out and to, and to really get the message out. So if folks are interested in participating, I'd love to have their help. J.D., congr- uh, congratulations on the campaign. Good luck with the rest of it. And uh, uh, and then especially being a part of and getting a chance to talk to you with Hillbilly Elegy and, uh, you know, for the book being as massive as it was, especially during the tumultuous Trump years that we had, to the point of, you know, watching the movie and having it come out. Unfortunately, the timing of it during the pandemic when it came out. Uh, well, last thing, did you, what, the last thing I'll ask you is, uh, what did you think about the movie? Was it as close as what you could? <laughs> because I got to say, when they were showing the photos at the end of the movie, they really made Mama. Glenn Close looked like Mama. I couldn't believe, I was like, oh my God, it's like the same person. It was incredible. The, the makeup, whoever yeah. did that should have won an Oscar, unless they have, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I, I thought they did a good job with it. You know, you're always nervous when you pass over something so personal to a Hollywood studio to make it. I thought they really tried hard to do it the right way. And I, you know, have some, some small things I might quibble with, but I thought they did a very good job with it. And uh, you're absolutely right. The thing I cared most about was whether they got Mam all right. And they, and they really did. I think Glenn Close, both in the look, but the feel and the attitude, I think she really captured something that was really powerful about my grandmother. And I, I was re- I was really proud of it. I thought they did a good job. Hollywood royalty, Glenn Close playing your grandmother. You never would have thought that growing up. No, no. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, so, Jamie, so crazy. Thank you so much again. Uh, and again, good luck with the campaign. It was great to talk to you. I hope to talk to you down the road and uh, meet you whenever, whenever you're around these parts.